This is a Billionaires in Boxes production. Hello and welcome to this edition of Billionaires in Boxers with me, Phil Paluccia, your host. As always, I am joined today by Mike Swigunski. How you doing, Mike? Doing great, Phil. Thanks so much for having me on today. Do you know what, brother? I took a. Uh, thankfully, your surname's. Hopefully, I said it right. It looks like I, I read it as it sounds. So I, I took a bit of a leap there. I didn't even ask you how I pronounced your surname. So I just went for it. You did great, man. Like, that was one of the best pronunciations I've seen. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's just swig, gun, ski. And like, I even have a thing it's swig, gun, and then ski. People can't see this right now, but I'm doing a skiing gesture. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Well, listen, I've had every variant of my name that you can possibly imagine. In fact, just before we get into the show, um, funny little story for you. Years ago, and this is showing my age now, I was working in the sales office. And on a Monday, we'd come in and we had a shared office voicemail. So you'd play out the voicemail out loud and people would write down the messages that were relevant for them. That's how old school this is. Wow. Um, and some, I'd rang somebody on like the Thursday or the Friday and they tried to call me back over the weekend. And they'd obviously completely misheard my surname, which is Palucha. And uh, he rings up and he leaves a voicemail. And he says, uh, hello, um, this is a returned call for Mr. Pucci. <laughs> and I literally became Pucci for about the next oh. five years. Anybody who was in that room only knew me as Pucci from that point onward. So. That's a good way to get a, uh, a work nickname. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Oh, it was really annoying because every time I went to lunch, I'd come back and they'd have stuck like Poochie the dog from The Simpsons on my screen at work. <laughs> so, yeah, it, I'm not, not sure I wanted that surname. But um, anyway, we are where we are. So, look, you, uh, I was, we were having a chat a few weeks ago and I was desperate to get you on the show because I thought, you know, we, as we were saying in the virtual green room just before, you know, there has never been a better time to be talking about remote work. And given what you do and, and your expertise in that field, um, for our audience that have come across you, you know, you are a remote jobs expert, a best-selling author. You're the founder of Global Career. Um, so you seem like the right person to be talking to, Mike. Yeah, definitely. This is uh, an interesting year for remote work. And it's definitely giving everyone like uh, a free trial or a free trial of, of remote working. So uh, I'm very curious. I think it's probably pushed the remote work industry ahead probably 10 years. It was already mm -hmm. going that way slowly, but this just really push it ahead. And a lot of people are really being forced into it. So they're not having the, the best experience because the company doesn't have the infrastructure set up. Their kids aren't normally, you know, at home all the time, they would be at school. So they're having to juggle a lot of things. And there's like a pandemic going on. So mm -hmm. all of these things happening simultaneously, it's not the norm for, for remote work. Having no. even just one of those things can really throw you off. So I think if people are, are not loving the remote work, uh, you know, infrastructure right now, I, you really need to reconsider it, kind of look at the benefits. It's not going to be for everyone moving forward, but there's going to be a lot of people that absolutely love it after this trial period and are going to be really uh, hesitant to go back into the office. So, Do you know what? It's kind of like a, it's like remote work light isn't it? It's not like diet remote work. It's not, it doesn't even feel like full remote work at this point. Cause I mean, I, you and I have had this conversation before I've been remote working now for probably coming up to eight years. So a long time. Um, but the major aspect of that, that I love is that I get to travel with it. I get to work from wherever I want. And that is something that at the moment has been completely taken away from me. So even I've found it unusual being in this one location for so long, trying to work from home in this environment when 
you know, I'm not used to it and I am used to remote working. So it's kind of like it's, um, I think you're saying it's like a free trial. I guess it's like any free trial, isn't it? You get access to a limited amount of it to see whether you like it. And if you do, then you can kind of fully subscribe. Um, that's kind of how it feels to me, to me at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's like a mandatory trial, but like a lot of the core features aren't included in it. Exactly. So, yeah, I, I feel you there with not being able to travel. And I, I think this is probably the longest I've gone without, you know, doing an international trip uh, in, in the past decade or so. So mm. it's one of the core benefits for having that flexibility and being able to, to essentially work from your laptop. Um, just being able to to go even just go out and work at a coffee shop is in some locations like like here in Tbilisi, Georgia, they've closed all restaurants and coffee shops. So even if you just want to go out for, you know, a midweek trip to kind of work at a coffee shop, you don't really have that option. So it's, it's a lot more time inside. So I, mm. I think this is going to be a great overall trend for people. I think it's going to really kind of push people into remote work for the better part. It's going to also really give people the option to start building a more flexible work to life balance. And mm -hmm, I think that's mm -hmm. something that a lot of Americans struggle with where maybe they're having to spend 50 hours in an office and they could probably get their work done in 20 to 30 hours. Uh, so I think there's going to be a lot of benefits. It's just going to take some time for, to even out all of the, the loose ends that are going on right now. So, you know, one of my, um, one of my former employers actually taught me a lot about kind of how I could work from home and how to work remotely. Cause one of the things that I, I definitely say over the years that I've seen, and this comes from somebody who employs a team of 16 people remotely at the moment, um, is that not everybody is cut out for remote work. Um, there are certain people who I still kind of feel like they need that kind of office environment. Cause if you're not, it's like the substitute teacher analogy, you know, right. like when the teacher leaves the room, you stop working. Um, whereas there are other people that just kind of get on with it um but this particular um md that i was working with before i kind of went solo and and went off on my own he was he was great at knowing how to get the most out of me he knew that the two things that motivated me the most were time with my family and money um, he knew that they were the way to get to me so what he would do is he would say okay look as soon as you hit this weekly target you can go home like i don't care when that is that could be tuesday afternoon that could be friday morning that could be wednesday i don't care you will go home whenever that happens so what ended up happening was as you, exactly as you just said i was getting my work done by kind of tuesday afternoon wednesday morning um, for the week. So to then encourage it even further, he kind of set like a higher bar target and say, okay, well, you can either just go home at that point, or you can achieve this. And I don't mind where you do that from, you can work from home, you can do it from wherever. And once you achieve that, again, your weekend starts early, and I'll give you an extra financial bonus as a result. So what ended up happening for that was I only ended up working four day weeks. I was working Monday to Thursday. I'd be done by Thursday lunchtime and I'd have a bonus to spend every weekend. And that for me was my very first introduction to working from home because it, he, he realized that actually I was more efficient when I was at home because I'd have less people coming in and out of my office to ask me random questions and just talk to me. Um, and that for me was a real eye opener. And I kind of assumed rather naively, and I imagine you'll have got plenty of stories like this as well, but I assumed rather naively that everybody would kind of have the same mindset. That, like if you empower people and you give them that freedom, that they will embrace it and they will want to work hard and get it done and do a good job. And, and actually I don't think that's the case for everybody. Yeah. I definitely think like, like you mentioned, your, your boss or your manager kind of figured out how you were motivated 
And not everyone's going to have that same motivation factor, right? So mm-hmm. you, you really need to figure out what's going to work best for your employees. Some people are going to be able to kind of take that, take it and run with it by being on their own, having the freedom to kind of choose their hours. But some other people are going to need that structure where mm-hmm. they need to be told, like, you need to be doing, be online between these hours. After those hours, it's fine. So it, it's really going to vary on what type of role it is, what type of person you're working with. And there's going to be a lot of varying factors, but there's some really good ways that before, while tri- transitioning to a remote workforce, you can set up some really great infrastructure to, to build up your team for success. So giving them a, a home office stipend. So not everyone's going to have a great working structure at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you can try to give them you know, $500 to build a home office or just a separate working space at their home. Give them something for a good office, a good share. Maybe it's even like their internet, they're struggling with their internet. We've had some, some people in, that I've worked with in the Philippines and we were like, you should be able to do this tax, task in you know, 30 minutes. But we were reviewing their, their workflow and the big issue was the internet speeds. They just could mm-hmm. not achieve this task in 30 minutes. No matter how fast they were working, they were being very efficient. So there's a lot of different factors, the internet, you know, being comfortable, having a separate environment that are just going to make people more productive, more efficient, and they're going to be longevity. Uh, it's going to maintain the longevity of those employees because they're actually going to enjoy their work and be comfortable while they're doing it. So mm-hmm. I, I think if you're not trying to make the, the home work environment a better place for your employees, setting up some sort of expectations about what they should be achieving each week, kind of laying that stuff out for them, I think that's going to be detrimental to having a successful remote workforce and a remote work team. Yeah, no, I love that. And, I, and I've certainly found that out to my peril. I've hired some people who are still with me today who are absolutely fantastic. And I've hired other people who very much kind of needed that handholding. And I probably hadn't, A, I hadn't realized how much support they were going to need. And B, there wasn't an infrastructure in place to provide that level of support. Um, you know, it was almost a I see people more as partners than employees kind of thing. It's like, okay, you're responsible for your bit. I've got my bit. I'm going to go and get on with my bit. You're going to go get on with your bit. And then we're going to meet at this point on the roadmap in the future. Yeah. Uh, And I don't think everybody works that way. No, it's definitely sometimes unclear for, for people that are being onboarded. And uh, especially now that there's not as much communication, I think with the remote workforce, like email is, is great, but there's, there needs to be some sort of internal Slack, you know, Slack or some type of chat app. I don't know if you saw, but, uh, Salesforce just acquired Slack for, I don't know, 20 billion or something crazy. Yep. We use Slack quite a lot, actually. So I use Slack a lot and I use personally, as you can imagine, given what I do, um, I do a lot of private podcasts. So we do the kind of like two or three podcasts a week for either individually, like me doing like a sales thing or a training thing um, for my team. Or indeed, if there's like um, celebrating successes, like the US team, for example, they had a couple of really big wins that they were excited about and they wanted to tell the rest of the company about them. So they came on a podcast with me and that was a private podcast internally. So we do a lot of Slack, Slack and WhatsApp for kind of immediate communication. And then a couple of kind of like weekly updates and training via delivered via podcast, which I enjoy that. Yeah, I think that's a really cool thing that uh, a lot of co- other companies can do something like that where, you know, maybe it's the founders. If you ha- if you do have a larger team kind of having those internal discussions uh, and some of the remote companies I've worked in the past, they would kind of have an all hands meeting where it would essentially be a presentation. That way, everyone's just kind of they know what's going on. But uh, once you're 
your team gets past that boutique size, so 12 mm -hmm. to 15 employees, the internal communication and the internal marketing becomes almost as important as your external marketing because people just don't know what's going on. The chains of communication are, are so split and so like extended that it's really vital that to spend time and to really focus on keeping your employees up to date and having something that fits your, your brand and your culture and making sure that everyone's staying in tune. Uh, the, the internal like weekly emails or monthly emails are great, but I think you need to have some sort of video or audio thing going on. Like mm. you mentioned with your, your internal podcast, that's a great idea. Well, look, the, um, the, it works particularly well with our sales and account management team because what we found was that each sort of location, so we've got people all over the world. We've got Brazil, US, uh, Ireland, the UK, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, and India. So we are literally yeah. all over the world, right? And what I found was that people were acting almost like quite siloed, right? So India would kind of do India's thing and Australia and New Zealand would kind of do their own thing, but they weren't really communicating with the US. So when we started those communication channels, what actually happened as a result was a lot more communication between the different areas, but actually a lot more collaboration as well. So there was a, um, a particular partnership that, that started to come out of the States primarily, and we were seeing more and more of these things happening. And it was kind of like we pulled that thread, right? So once you pull it, it just keeps coming. And it was, um, this is a couple of years ago now, but it was PR firms. And PR firms were coming to us saying, we are responsible for the image of our clients, but they don't have enough content. Podcasting creates an abundance of content. How about we do a partnership together and we make it work? But nowhere else in the world was doing this, only the US. So when we shared that on a podcast with the team and we're like, this is what it is we're doing. This is why it is it's working. These are the pain points that they're telling us that we're solving for them suddenly everybody all over the world was like, oh, well, we should try that in our area. And before you knew it, we now had PR partnerships in all of those countries I've just mentioned. And it was like, okay. So it actually made the business far more efficient as well just by being able to have that communication channel. Yeah, I think that's a, you, you really do have to get creative and, and kind of build something around your, your own company that's going to work well. And I, I think people have just been thrown into it. Some people had a, a better infrastructure Others just haven't, and they're just kind of maintaining. I, I think it's going to be really easy for those, you know, under 10, 15 people. But anything mm -hmm. over that, it's going to be really difficult if they were in kind of an office setting. And some industries are just going to be easier to translate or transfer over to remote work. Uh, sure. It's just the name of the game. Like, not every industry is going to make a great remote workforce. So uh, no. people have to get very creative now. So it, it also comes from the top, doesn't it? I mean, I, I read a, a really powerful quote back in the summer and somebody said there's two different types of businesses at the moment. There's the ones that are allowing you to work from home and they're the ones who are empowering you to work from home. Oh, I like that. I like that too. I was like, that's interesting because there's the people who you know as soon as the office is open again, they're going to bring you all straight back to the office because they're really not enjoying this. And then there's I'm having conversations with even some quite large organizations who are saying, we don't think we're ever going to go back to that way of working again. It's going to need to be a bit of a hybrid model with much more work from home, but then training meetings and sessions and strategy stuff together a few times a week, maybe, but the rest of the time you can work from home. Um, you know, I've, I've used the phrase quite a lot, you know, moving from a time-based currency to a solution-based currency. Um, and I'm starting to see that happening a lot more. Again, not in every sector, because there are certain sectors that this is particularly difficult for. But in a lot of sectors, I think people are now starting to even question things like, 
why am I paying such a large real estate bill to have a, a city center office? Yeah, exactly. I think there's going to be a huge shift in, in focusing in on the productivity or the output of your employees and not so much on just the time spent in the office or the time working. I think a good example of this is pre-COVID, there was a few of my friends that worked in the corporate, in the corporate world and they would work from home like once a week on Fridays. Uh, they'd probably work two or three hours. But the thing that they, they thought was so annoying is they had some sort of tracking system or you know thing where they would have to move their mouse every few hours or every yeah. few minutes to stay active. And I was like, that's just so dumb. Like, mm. why don't you just focus on having some sort of goal for that week or their month? And if they're, if they're hitting that or some sort of goal that they need to accomplish that day, instead of just like having them sit there moving their mouse around for, for eight hours. It seems so counterproductive. For sure. Have you? I'm, I'm curious, have you heard of a book uh, or an author, I should say, uh, an Australian business author called Daniel Priestley? I'm, I'm not familiar with him. I'll send you his stuff. He's really good, good actually. I like Dan a lot. He lives in London now. I've met him on a number of occasions. He's a, he's a good guy and I really enjoy his stuff. But one of his first books was called Entrepreneur Revolution. And it was basically about moving from the industrial mindset to the mindset of an entrepreneur. It's kind of saying, look, the industrial mindset of finish school, go to college, go to university, head to the city, get a job, work your way up and, and stay there. And And it was kind of talking about exactly what we've just said. It's the what is productive from either an employee engagement perspective or indeed from a productivity perspective with your friends in that example needing to move their mouse so it looks like they're still active. That's it's just a ridiculous game of yeah. wasting each other's time. Um, whereas what was wrong with that business empowering them to say, okay, if you get your work done inside two or three hours, go and enjoy the rest of the day. You know, if you want to get up early in the morning and do that at six till nine AM and then enjoy the rest of your day, go and do that. You know, there should be there should be more support, I feel, from organizations to be able to encourage that level of kind of efficiency. Yeah, I think some of the some companies will will adjust and shift and and they'll they'll maintain that over time, but some won't and and they'll be really greatly impacted by that you know, employees are smart. They're going to want, they're going to know these benefits and they're going to know the companies that are, are treating their employees this way, like adults and get, allowing them this sort of freedom and flexibility to, to kind of have the future of work where they can mold their lives around work and not vice versa. And I think that's the real future of work is mm. having the flexibility to work when, when you want to and focus on the outputs instead of just focusing on the time spent there. Well, I'll tell you one thing that I'm really starting to see more of happening already, and it's it's particularly exciting me because one of the things that has been uh, a major consideration for me, and I imagine for you as well, is whenever you're going somewhere, like to go and travel and do your work remotely, um, there's always this kind of whole confusion around visas. It's like, am I coming in on a work visa, at which point I kind of need to set up a business locally, and then there's all the restrictions that come with that. Am I coming in... Uh, on a nomadic visa, um, you know, th there's, you know, is it a holiday visa where I'm going to do a visa run every 90 days, but not, you know, pay tax in my home country. Whereas what I've seen a lot since COVID happened is there are countries like Barbados, for example, and Georgia's another one actually, whilst you're there, who are actively kind of saying we are creating nomad and nomadic family visas where you're going to be able to come over here and contribute to our economy. And we know that you're working from here. Um, and I think that's going to make life much easier when it comes to things like identifying places that you can 
go and work without having to worry that someone's going to knock on your door and say, right. Hey, are you paying tax here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's funny you mentioned that I actually just published an article for entrepreneur.com uh, just recently about the, the most, the up and coming remote work visas and digital nomad visas. And like you mentioned, Barbados, Georgia, mm-hmm. there's a few other good ones coming up. Uh, they're trying to get one for Indonesia and I've got a few friends mm-hmm. that are leading that that task in, in Bali to get a digital nomad visa approved. So you're definitely going to see a lot of that. And I think with the quarantines, with the quarantine like state right now, people just can't, you know, go on vacation for two weeks and sit in quarantine. You know, they need to attract a new type of audience. And a lot of the forward thinking governments are realizing that, Hey, now there's a lot of, there's a huge remote workforce. Let's try to draw people in we can get them to stay here instead of just for two weeks. We can get them to stay here for three to six months, maybe even longer than that. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that appealed to um, me and my girlfriend about Georgia and Tbilisi is even before COVID, they allowed you to come here for a year on a tourist visa. It's a 12-month visa, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So after that 12 months, you can just go across the border and come back for another 12 months. And they've kind of pivoted to a remote work visa for digital nomads and stuff. Where it's essentially the same thing. You just need to prove that you have a steady source of income, that you have insurance that's going to cover you. And that's pretty much it. Like, there's not a huge amount of barrier to get through. It's still kind of that 12 month visa. But there's going to be a lot more options like this for, for people all around the world. So I, I love it. I think that's been one of the most annoying things for doing this kind of digital nomad lifestyle for the past decade is you find a place you love, you find a bunch of, you know, friends and you plant some roots, you get into routine and it's like, well, I pretty much have to leave the country and maybe come back or who knows mm-hmm. what's going to happen at the border if they're going to let me back in. So just kind of this, this new shift of the the new remote work visas are going to be really great for, I think for countries and for travelers, it, it seems like a win-win in my, uh, in my perspective. I, I fully agree. And when you said earlier about, you feel like the remote working sector has kind of advanced by 10 years or so, five to 10 years as a result, I kind of feel like this is one of the byproducts of that. Um, and actually for, for somebody like me, that I, that really excites me. Like I love the idea of being able to do this because my problem is always the fact that um, we're having to look for visas, not just for me. My wife and I, it's pretty easy because we're both directors for the business, but we have two young children. So we're a nomadic family. And actually there's a lot of places, you know, take Thailand, for example, Chiang Mai, like we could have gone and traveled to Chiang Mai. I'm going to go and work over there. However, it's quite difficult to take my children. So it would have been relatively easy for us to get a visa, but then you're trying to get the children a visa and it's like, are they on a holiday visa? Or are they on the same type of visa as us? And it, it all just becomes a lot more complicated where I, Whereas I think because of COVID forcing people to to work remotely, there are now more families that are saying, you know, we could do this together. You know, we could go and live somewhere else six months of the year. We could be somewhere else for six to 12 months and still be just as productive. And, you know, kudos to the the governments that are taking advantage of that. I think it's a very clever idea to try and balance the checkbook a little bit from the money that's been lost from the tourism industry, um, but also to encourage more um, sort of working professionals to your country, which is always a great idea. Yeah, it's going to be a much more sustainable type of tourism as well. You know, if you're visiting a country for you know more than a week or so, you're going to expand outside of that those main hubs. Like, you know, if you go to Paris or something, you're, you're going to have a lot more time to explore other parts of the country, and that's especially true for here. Like, local tourism has been really big. It's kind of their only option. So mm-hmm. we we can't really travel internationally. So we've been 
every month trying to pick like a new part of Georgia to kind of explore, uh, really kind of giving back to the local tourism, it, also learning more about the country and just getting to experience more more stuff that we probably wouldn't have uh, if if there wasn't for COVID. So I think local tourism and kind of this longer term slow travel is really going to be the new norm for until, you know, there's a vaccine and, and things kind of mm-hmm. get back to normal. So I, I think, uh, I, I hope a lot of the, the positive aspects from this year maintain long-term and we get over some of the, the bad things. And it's kind of a, a year to refresh and, and mm. build a new infrastructure off of. For sure. And, but you know what? It gives people a lot of options as well. So I, I spent uh, a lot of my career working in London and the average age of a first time buyer in London is now 45 because you have to save for a very long period of time to be able to afford a deposit. Real estate prices are going through the roof. So to use the example that you've just given there, you know, if you were to move to Georgia on a 12 month visa and go and work, there is some incredible, there's a real estate boom happening in Tablinski, but there's also a real estate boom happening in Batumi on the coast. You know, right. incredible they've got good infrastructure for the internet it's a nice place to live lower cost of living than you would find in in both the states and in sort of mainland europe um and if you buy real estate there which is probably going to cost you 50 60 70 which is not a lot in, in comparison to what you'd be spending back home you then can get permanent status there in the country as well so actually this isn't just giving people an opportunity of new places to work. This is giving people a new opportunity of places to live and also get on the real estate market as well, get on the ladder. Oh yeah. There, there's definitely going to be a lot of great opportunities like that. And I, I think the geo arbitrage is honestly one of the biggest perks about being a digital nomad. You can have such a higher lifestyle than if you're going to live anywhere else. Uh, and achieving that you can also, it's not just about how much you earn, but how much you save. And if, if you're mm-hmm. able to maintain your your salary in the states or in the UK, but live over a place where it's one tenth the price, uh, it's going to be a lot more money for you to kind of st- say, and your your mm-hmm. lifestyle is going to improve uh, tremendously just by doing that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's one of the things that anybody who listens to my show will know that I love that because you know I spend a lot of my time in South Africa. Um, I love South Africa. It's where my wife's from. Um, we spend a lot of time down there. In fact, I'm supposed to be there now if we were allowed to travel. Um, but I love earning pounds and dollars and spending rand because I get so much more, you know, bite for my buck. Um, it goes a long, a long way, and you can live a a, a great standard of living, a great lifestyle without needing to kind of, I mean, to live the same sort of lifestyle in, let's say, London or New York or LA, you know, I'd be having to rake in eight, nine, 10,000 US dollars after tax each month just to even come close to it. Um, and and that's, you know, some businesses do that, some businesses don't. But if you're still reliant on a salary or a contract rate or whatever, you know, I agree with you. Why would you want to stay in the little sort of one bedroom box shared apartment in central London when you could go and work from a beach in Bali and, and have a much better lifestyle? You could have a beach villa in Bali and yeah. still, still be saving money. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's definitely the the thing. And I it, it kind of raises a interesting topic that I've been discussing with some people in the industry is about paying their employees based on their location. Mm-hmm. Have you have you ha- come across this before where Let's say you were living in London, but then you moved to the outskirts to a cheaper part of the UK where it's more affordable mm-hmm. and kind of reducing that person's salary because they're based in another geographical location. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that's something that is going to be kind of the the new norm? It already happens. Um, so um, it, it tends to be kind of more 
um, city-based rather than kind of suburbs-based. So I guess um, what I'm saying is like take London as an example. The people who live in the suburbs and travel two to three hours to get into work, they're still paid the same as people who live in central, choose to live in central London. However, it is well known that the salaries for jobs in London are substantially higher than anywhere else in the UK doing the same job. Um, so what you'll often find is that businesses will have like a smaller office in London and then they'll set up larger offices in Liverpool, Manchester and Birmingham for their things like their developers so that they can pay them less, um, right. you know, so there's not as much competition for staff. Um, I personally, uh, I don't do that at all with my team. Uh, my guys in, in the States, some of them, I mean, we've got Arizona and New York. Um, they get paid exactly the same as my team in India. Um, it was more of a, this is a fair rate for the role. And if you choose to be somewhere else, I'm not going to kind of punish you for that. Um, I think there's probably going to be an element of, uh, you know, you're probably going to get paid slightly less for the for the ability of remote working and freedom of work. Rather than it being location specific, I think it's going to kind of be an office salary and an out of office salary. That's kind of how I would imagine that that would work. Yeah, I think that makes a lot more sense. The the companies that I see doing it now, they have kind of like a salary formula where they take your location, where you're based, they take your experience level, and then obviously like what, what the role demands. And they mm. kind of com combine that all together to come out with their salary. And I think it's pretty interesting. I do think in some some businesses it will work well. But again, it just as long as it's up front and the employees are kind of aware of that, I think that's fine. It, mm. You got to be transparent about it. But I do think, uh, I do agree with you that there should be kind of a in-office salary, out-of-office salary. Uh, the, where the person is is living shouldn't really come into play, in my opinion. It should just be like, you have this much money for this role. There should be some transparency. And I think that's one of the most frustrating things for job seekers is, you know, we I have a remote job website. And trying to figure out how much these companies are hiring, or a lot of times they don't even want to post it. They don't want to share with in the job posting that they're that they even have a hiring range or a budget, you know, right. between seventy thousand to ninety thousand. They don't want to share that because, you know, they want to hold that on to the very end. And if they can get somebody mm -hmm. for seventy thousand, a good employee, they'd rather take that person. If the same skilled person is, is for ninety thousand, they're going to take the one for cheaper, right? So yeah. I, I, I do see the the sides from employers, but I, I think there's got to be a little bit more transparency. And I think for job seekers right now, that's probably one of the biggest frustrations is you don't even know how much the role is hiring for at all and trying mm. to kind of isolate those roles. So I, I think the hiring process in the future will hopefully be a little bit more transparent. And I think it'll be a benefit for both sides. You know what? It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think that's that's not actually a a, a, an ins um, a problem that's unique to the remote working jobs market. So I was a headhunter for a number of years, and actually businesses would do the same for even just normal job postings. You know, it's the it's the assumption of if you say that this salary range is between fifty and sixty five, that everybody's going to want sixty five, right. or they're going to come in and pitch it at sixty because they don't want the lower end or they don't want the top end. Um, you know, I've even seen it where people have been offered positions and they've re rejected them because they've been offered the lower end of the scale. And actually, they were they would have been quite happy with that as a salary. But because you've told them that there's now a 50 to 65 range, they've got 60, 65 in their mind. So when you right. offer them a 53, they go, you've lowballed me. I don't <laughs> want it. Um, so I think that's something that people need to to get used to, I think. I mean, and one of the, the ways that I found 
um, a lot of the the major job boards uh, here and stateside actually kind of got over that um, was they would kind of almost punish in terms of the rankings the jobs that didn't have a salary on them um the ones that had a salary would take up the first like five pages of job searches and then the ones that didn't would say like undisclosed or as per request or whatever and they just wouldn't get the same level of detail so they would be actively encouraged hey listen you know you want a good range of people seeing this job you need to stick your salary range on there yeah. And I think it also goes back to the job seeker. Like you really need to know what you're worth, like what your, your time's worth, what your experience is worth. And there's a lot of good resources out there. Glassdoor has a pretty good one where you can enter in a lot of information about your mm-hmm. experience. It essentially takes a lot of data, puts it together and will give you a range. And obviously you need to take the range of your previous salary. And I think that's one of the questions it asks you. So knowing what you're worth and kind of using that as a starting point uh, mm-hmm. is going to be really essential for, for the job hunting, you know, experience, making sure that your, your incentives are kind of aligned with what you're looking for and what's out there. I'm not a huge fan of them as an agency, but I will give them a shout out for their research. There's a, the global search agency Hayes. Um, every single year they bring out a, um, a directory, like a research directory of salaries for different regions and locations for different industries. And I often find that quite interesting because you get to see, um, you get to see who's paying what for where and what level of experience and all that kind of stuff. And you can just make sure that you pitch yourself accordingly. Uh, in fact, a little bit of a secret for you, um, cause I'm not doing it anymore, so I can share it now. Um, any recruiters listening to this, you can probably get a pen and paper right now. Um, I used to do exactly that. I knew which roles I used to recruit for. So I used to go through those directories to see which areas were paying the higher salaries for those. And I would go and specifically target those areas to win clients because I knew if I'm getting 20, 25% fee, I'd much rather be getting 25% of 80 grand than 25% of 50 grand. Um, it's It's the same amount of work that goes into the role. So I might as well go and focus on these locations. And actually that's, that's been able to, help my clients even today like prime example there's a guy who works um in technology he he's london based and one of the things that he said to me when he he started working with us was i'm desperate to become an influencer because i need to stand out in the job market because every time i'm competing for contracts there's like four thousand competitors in the london area alone like i'm really struggling and every time you get to somebody because they know there's so many people out there they're making you lower your price and it's like a race to the bottom on fees it's like okay i won't do my 500 day rate i'll do it for 300 i'll do it for 320 okay that person said they'll do it for 290 okay i'll do it for 275 and before you know it you're doing it like half price work Um, But using that directory, I was able to find out that in Melbourne and Sydney, there's only 400, not 4,000 people that do what they do. And the salaries are through the roof because it's so competitive. So he was able in this environment to be able to work remote. He was able to now stop winning London clients altogether and focus on the Australian market, where now not only is he getting paid a higher fee than he was in London, even from his normal day rate, he's able to, to, to select and cherry pick the clients that he wants to work with as a result. So I definitely agree with you. I think research is key, you know, um, forearmed is forewarned and all that, forewarmed is forearmed and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the more information you have at your disposal, the better that search is going to be. Yeah, understanding the data and, and kind of be, that's one of the great things about working and building an online business is it opens up not only hiring from other countries, but also 
getting clients, like you mentioned, from from other industries. Mm-hmm. You're able to take your service that maybe you're offering locally in London and get clients in a, in a whole other country. And it's a lot less competitive. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they'll pay a higher price. So mm-hmm. that, that's great. That's a really great example of the power of, of kind of building an online business. Well, you also find that there will be different uh, cultures and customs that gel better with you as an individual. So um, obviously everyone listening to this knows what I do with with podcasting and, and using it for content creation and authority building for clients and stuff. But the irony is I only have one British client and he lives in New Zealand. Um, I don't work with any – in fact, I was going to say I don't work with any clients in the UK. I do. One guy and he's an American. Um, and it's because – the vast majority of our work happens in North America, Australia, and New Zealand, because as individuals, as in a culture, they are much happy to network and have a relationship with somebody and just see where it goes. You know, you put two people in a room together and something awesome is going to happen. Whereas not always, so I'm not just generalizing here, but I feel like a lot of the, the British culture is if they don't know what it is they're going to be getting out of that conversation to begin with, they don't see the benefit of even entering into it. Yeah, I think a lot of people are struggling now with networking and this thing comes up all the time is like, you know, coronavirus is going on. How can I network? And I think networking, I, I like to use the word just relationship building. I think that's Massive. a better term and it's more accurate. Like if you're if you're going to go out and just message somebody because you need something right away, that relationship's not going to work out well. You need to start networking or building those relationships three to six months out. And it's something you need to be doing before you actually need something or need a favor, if you're just mm-hmm. going up to to random strangers and asking for something in return, mm-hmm. uh, you're gonna you're, it might work one out of a, a thousand, but you're gonna be get a lot of rejection. Whereas if you take some time, start building those relationships, being authentic, and you're gonna be able to to really build some solid you know relationships and actually ask for when the time comes, ask for something from those people. If you're looking for a connection for a new job or looking to do business with somebody, it's going to be mm. a lot, lot easier than if you just go up to strangers and ask them like, Hey, will you give me money for some service that I don't even need? So I, I mm. think now that I'm a contributor for entrepreneur and, you know, building up an audience on LinkedIn, I'm sure you see this as well. Like I get so many targeted messages that are just, you know, they're so off. Like they try to, they try to have some sort of range, but they send me, I don't know, 400 words of text that I'm, I don't have time to read. And so you. they're just asking for something where I'm like, you know, we need to have some mutual value here if we're going to do something like, mm-hmm. and, and I'm, I think a lot of people have that same approach for job hunting, finding remote work where they're just going to go out and just kind of have this shotgun approach where it's better to have a sniper approach where you're, you're doing some research, finding people that are a good fit to help you and trying to build a relationship. Well, look, two examples of what you just said there, actually, because you are you are hundred percent right. Okay, so take us two as a as a great example for our listeners. You know, we we don't work together. I imagine at some point we will, because we have a lot of similarities, and I, I expect our paths will cross at some point in the future. But the reason that we're doing a podcast is to get to know each other better. It's that relationship building. It's the value add. You know, that's what I love about podcasting. It's a you know, I always say to my clients, don't try and sell anything. This isn't about selling. This is about relationship building because you don't even know if you want to sell to this person yet until you see whether you resonate with them. You know, your vibe attracts your tribe. So build a relationship. So to, to just take the example that you've just given there, we're going to spend maybe an hour together today recording this podcast. That's an hour of your time. 
but you don't have the time to read that person's 400 word spam message that they've sent you. So actually, it's not about the time. It's about the the time invested into the right things. If you approach it in the right way, people will give you their time. But if you just try and instantly sell to people, I mean, you're so right. I get it all the time. You know, the nice messages when you connect saying, hey, I just thought it'd be great to be part of your network. Would you like to connect? You click connect, and then the next thing, you've got a giant sales script <laughs> in your inbox, and it's like, I'm not even going to yeah. read this, dude. Um, so I, I am fully with you, and it's about building those relationships and, and, and seeing who you vibe with first and foremost and, and creating that value. You know, I'm a big believer in you have to give before you can receive, and giving that time exchange and building that conversation and having that relationship via a podcast is is – for me, it's been a phenomenal way of global networking. It's 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 my favorite networking tool, quite comfortably. Um, the other thing I'd say is you mentioned it about job seekers having that kind of shotgun approach. And obviously, having worked in in recruitment and, and talent for many years, I mean, I've, I've seen a ridiculous amount of resumes and CVs, as you can imagine. Um, and in fact, I was around when they first started to bring in the applicant tracking systems, which just confuse the life out of people, but they're essentially just keywords, right? They're looking for keywords and matches right. in a resume. Now, just because you send me an application doesn't mean that you're going to get an interview. In fact, it doesn't even mean that it's going to get read because we were receiving so many resumes that I was only reading the top 30% that matched the keywords. The rest of them a few days later would get a nicely worded automated email to say, thank you, but you've not been successful on this occasion. Because um, I just didn't have time to be reading 6,000 resumes a week. It wasn't possible. But I'll tell you this. Every single person who sent me a video um, application or a video sales letter, a video cover letter, they got an interview every single time. Because it was the people who would send me a, just a two-minute video to say, I saw your advert. This is my experience. This is why I really resonated with you. I noticed as a business you're doing this, this, and this which really relates to me because of this, you know, I'd, I'd be really grateful if you'd consider my application. Here's my resume attached. Let me know every single time they would get an interview because they've gone above and beyond. Yeah. I think right now you have to, you have to try to be in that 1%. And that's what we teach people in our remote life program, which is our career advancement program. Essentially we completely revamp their resumes and we work with them. We show them how to do it. We show them the applicant tracking system keywords that they need to input and it gives them a really good foundation. Then we also just give them access to these remote companies that are going to be fitting what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. It's going to be just overall a good fit. And then lastly, just like you mentioned, we have a script and a process, how to create these video sales letters, how to send it out to people, what to say about it to really kind of meet your experience with the role you're applying for and kind of put mm -hmm. yourself in the shoes of the, the company that's hiring you. Like what value are you going to add them and displaying that value through your previous work experience is going to be really uh, allow you a lot of success when getting more interviews. So it, it's a lot of things that we, we try to encompass the whole package for helping people with career advancement, whether mm -hmm. you're at a job and you think you're, you're just not getting that fulfillment or you just want to get a, a remote job with more flexibility. There's a lot of things you have to do right. And, one of those things is, especially right now, trying to separate yourself, be in that 1% and, and try to stand out. Mm, no, I love that. Tell me, do you specifically just focus on, oh, I say just, it's a big enough market, uh, on the, the candidate and the applicant side of things? Or do you also work with businesses who for the first time are now starting to look at building these remote teams and possibly don't know kind of what that infrastructure needs to look like? 
Yeah, so I, I work with both sides. I would say right now it's kind of a, a balancing act. My main emphasis is probably 70% on job seekers and then the mm-hmm. 30% on working with companies uh, to try to help them set that infrastructure and build a company that's going to be able to scale. Brilliant. Well, I mean, you're the perfect person to do it. You you can be the matchmaker in the middle, right? Because yeah. you know exactly what it is the remote workers are looking for, and at the same to help the businesses. And at the same time, you know, when you're helping those businesses, you've got a, a list of people there who you know can offer real value. And that's the uh, that's the difficult thing in recruitment is people often think of it as a as a skill set matching, and actually, you know, it's kind of like. Um, it's kind of like a relationship, isn't it? It's like falling yeah. in love. It's like you can list all of the reasons why you love somebody and try and replicate it with somebody, but it doesn't mean you're going to instantly feel the same connection, the same way about that person. You have to resonate with the company that you're working for. You have to believe in the same kind of ethics and values and kind of want to go on this journey with them, you know, and, and try and aid the customers. And how many times do we see that with people that they're so unhappy in their job and it's not the tasks that they're doing it's the fact that the company they're working for for example doesn't care about customer service or doesn't care about the customer experience and that doesn't sit right with the employee so i think what you're doing is really fantastic and and marrying those two together yeah and we put just as much emphasis on the hard skills as the soft skills like developing those soft skills how to position that on your resume and application because being a cultural fit is almost just as important as having the right experience. You do need to have some of that experience, but if you have, you know, 50, 60% of that, but you're a hundred percent cultural fit, uh, mm-hmm. people are really going to consider you because of that. So I, I think figuring out the right way to display that on your resume and application is very mm-hmm. difficult for a lot of remote job seekers and just job seekers in general. So uh, we try to help have both of those aspects shine through. I love it. I really do. So what's, uh, what does 2021 have in store for you, Mike? It sounds like it's been, a, as it has been for all of us, a rather interesting year. So what's, what's next year looking like? Yeah, so I think uh, next year is hopefully going to be back on the speaking circuit. I had probably four or five uh, live events planned for this year. So a lot mm-hmm. of those got delayed to, to next year. So here locally in, in uh, Tbilisi, they're going to have the Nomad Summit, which was delayed until 2021 and then uh the digital nomad summit in bali so i even had a ted talk that was was delayed Did until you? next year <laughs> so oh uh, no a, a lot of speaking a lot of just uh helping people get get to a position and a and a job that they really love and enjoy for a company where they can have an impact i think that's what really moves me is helping people build a lifestyle that they're going to enjoy and for the rest of their life, it's going to provide more flexibility. So we're essentially teaching people skill sets that they're going to be able to use for the rest of their career. I love that. I love that very much because it's, you know, it's uh, that saying about give a man a fish and teach him to fish and all that kind of stuff, isn't it? It's, you know, these are skill sets and resources that they're going to be able to use in their career and then indeed in their future life if they decide to, uh, as many people do, fly solo at some point and go and set up on their own. These are still going to be skills and resources that that they're going to be able to put to good use for their business as well. Yeah. I think a lot of the companies that we work with personally kind of have that entrepreneurial spirit. So I think a lot of people need that progression where maybe they're working like a really corporate job and they want to work Mm -hmm. with something smaller where there's, you know, maybe they're, they're developing their entrepreneurial spirits a little bit. Maybe they, they incentivize people to even have a side hustle, uh, I think there's some progression where you can have this remote job where 
you're, you're having a big impact, but you're also able to create something for yourself and you can slow step your way into entrepreneurship. And I think that's, what's going to work really well for a lot of people. Not everyone can just jump straight in from, you know, to the entrepreneur dream of building their own business from scratch. So I think having that income, building a side hustle is a much safer bet. I couldn't agree with you more. Mike, this has been absolutely fantastic. For our listeners who I'm sure have taken a lot away from this, how can people get in touch with you, my friend? Yeah, so the best way to go to is my website, globalcareerbook.com. You can get a link to my remote job website, the best-selling book, and I've got a lot of other great free resources on there for everyone who's looking to come uh, check it out. That sounds absolutely perfect. Mike, this has been really enjoyable. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I know we were talking uh, just off air beforehand. I hope the lockdown in Georgia doesn't go too badly for you. I was a little bit sad to hear that that's happened, actually, because Georgia was the place I was looking at going, they've done really well here. (laughs) They don't need a lockdown or anything. They did great for a few months, but things have definitely picked up. So uh, it looks like it's going to be a a semi-lockdown until the end of February. But I think you know, they'll be able to handle things pretty well. Uh, hopefully fingers crossed. I have no doubt. Well, listen, you have a fantastic Christmas and new year, won't you? Um, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. I hope you'll come back again, uh, in 2021 and, uh, you can let us know all about the, uh, the summits both in, in Tablinski and in Bali and, and we can put those on the map for you as well. And hopefully encourage quite a few of our listeners who are uh, who are starting to get itchy feet now thinking do i have to live where i am uh to start really exploring some of this stuff so mike thank you so much for your time you've been a gent yeah thanks thanks for having me phil really appreciate it and looking forward to meeting you uh when you come to georgia sure thing brother that is a that is a must we will definitely make that happen awesome thanks so much thanks phil this is billionaires in boxes empowering one billion entrepreneurs one podcast at a time.